remember at all times that she was the new guy, or in FBI parlance, the fucking new guy. Her primary responsibility was not to screw up. Later in the day, after she and the other agents had finished collecting the evidence and had transported the boxes back to the Denver field office, Kelda figured that she, the fucking new guy, would be the one who would be assigned to spend the next few weeks sitting at her bureau desk examining the mind-numbing details of the service and billing records, trying to use account assistance Inc.'s own numbers to prove the fraud case that had spawned the warrant and the raid. It's what she did, and she knew she did it well. That was what she was contemplating when she saw the hand flash across the window a second time, but as swiftly as it appeared in the window, the little hand disappeared again. A more experienced agent might have gone back to her squad, reported what she had seen, and asked one of her colleagues to accompany her across the alley to investigate the fleeting hand. A more experienced agent, one who wasn't a bookish young woman with an accounting degree whose colleagues called her Clarisse behind her back, would have been less concerned about the scorn she would suffer if she pulled a fellow agent, or two or three, away from important work to search the back of an adjacent building because she thought that maybe she had seen a child's hand in the bottom of a window. Kelda could only imagine the relentless ridicule she would endure from her fellow agents after word spread in the field office that she had begged for assistance in checking out what would probably turn out to be nothing more nefarious than an unlicensed daycare facility. Kelda moved out of the utility closet, closed the door, and took three steps farther down the hall to a door that was marked Exit. An hour and a half earlier, she had stood in the alley on the other side of this very door in case any of the principals of Account Assistance, Inc. tried to flee out the back as the FBI team announced the raid and the warrant was served by the agents who entered the building through the door at the front. She checked the inside of the exit door for an alarm. She couldn't spot any electronic devices attached to the heavy door that would announce that she had opened it. She stepped outside, propped the door open with a softball-sized piece of concrete, and then jogged across the alley to the window with the streaky glass and the disappearing tiny hand. Two days before, six-year-old Rosa Alija had vanished from the playground of her elementary school's summer day camp near 32nd and Federal on Denver's near west side. The other children on the playground told police conflicting tales of a van or truck that was gray or brown, and one man who was white or two men who were black or two men and a woman who were all kinds of different combinations of races and colors, who had waited for a child to chase a ball into the field adjacent to the school, and then, when Rosa Alija had been that child, had scooped her up, covered her mouth, and carried her away in the van or truck. Some of the child witnesses reported that Rosa had kicked her legs and cried. Others maintained she was already dead by the time she got to the van. No adult reported seeing a thing, and no one had seen Rosa since. The girl's frantic parents, an independent landscaper named Jose Alija and his receptionist wife, Maria, waited in vain for a ransom demand, but neither the police nor the local FBI office expected to hear from Rosa's abductors. The Alijas weren't the type of family who were chosen for a kidnapping for ransom. Rosa Alija had been taken for some other purpose. Denver mobilized in an unprecedented fashion to find the girl. Hundreds of citizens, Hispanic, white, black, Native American, Asian, searched the city for little Rosa. Posses of private citizens scoured the banks of the South Platte River and Cherry Creek. The huge expanse of rail yard between her school and lower downtown was searched, and the interior of every last boxcar in the yard was examined. Her picture 
was featured on the front page of both daily papers, and the quest to find her dominated the local TV and radio news. Bloodhounds tracked her route away from the school. The dogs seemed confident that her abductor had taken her down Spear Boulevard after the kidnapping, but the hounds lost the scent near the spot where Spear intersected with Interstate 25. The cops knew that once Rosa's abductors had her on Denver's main freeway, they could have taken her anywhere. Anywhere. The Rocky Mountains, the Great Plains, the Great Basin, north to Wyoming, south to New Mexico. Anywhere. Even into the back room of a light industrial building in one of Denver's transitional urban neighborhoods. The bottom of the window in the building across the alley was level with the top of Kelda's head. She listened for the sounds of children playing but all she heard was the sow of distant traffic on Spear Boulevard. She heard nothing to convince herself that she had stumbled onto a daycare facility.